Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, everyone. Over the past few days, I've been getting messages asking when the next episode is coming out. Listeners trying to switch on, but couldn't. Well, truth is, in our office, we've got a really nice studio that makes things pretty easy when you're in the office. So when I swapped the studio for the kitchen table, it took a minute to get set up. So here we are. We're back. In today's show, it's going to be a bit different. You may or may not have noticed that we do every episode based on a specific piece of research that BNF users can then go dig into to get the details. Today, we won't be doing that. As you might expect, the bulk of our research right now is either about COVID-19 or its impact on the industries we cover. So we figured it would be useful to do a show about process, about how we started to look at this monstrous thing that's voided every forecast out there. Today, Dana and I talk with Albert Chung, head of research for BNF. He'll walk us through how we started to get our heads around the problem and frameworks BNF analysts developed to explain what's happening and to accommodate change. He also describes how all this will show up in our research, what to look out for, and what to make of it. If you'd like to follow our ongoing COVID coverage, including our popular COVID indicators reports, head over to bnf.com series, where you can subscribe to any of our 50 plus recurring publications. When a new report is published, you'll get an alert the second it comes out. As a reminder, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear a full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor, here with Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF Podcast. Hi, Albert. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. So when did it become apparent that COVID-19 was going to become a dominant piece of BNF's research agenda? Like a lot of things, it was very gradual and then very sudden. I actually first read about this mystery illness in Wuhan sometime in mid-December, but at that stage, it didn't seem that serious. It wasn't circulating human to human. So really, it was probably late January when our entire team in China was asked to work from home and parts of China went into lockdown. Our team started being affected. One person was actually placed into quarantine. So it became very real for us. And that's when our analysts in China actually really started thinking about what the impacts of COVID-19 was. And they put out this piece actually in mid-February that said, assuming the outbreak gets contained in Q1, then GDP growth will slow from 6% to about 5% this year in China. And clearly with hindsight, that now seems far, far too optimistic. And the story stayed an Asia-specific story for quite a while. Even in early March, in the global team, we were talking about impact on wind and solar, and we weren't really sure if there was going to be an impact. It was middle of March when it became really sort of unavoidably obvious that we were going to have to rework our forecasts, rework our our research agenda, um, because this thing was going to really dominate our work in the foreseeable future. So you realized you had to change tack. Things were moving quickly, perhaps quickly than we ever seen before in our research, at least. How did you start to get your head around the situation? How did you get started? Well, I can't take any credit at all for this. Our analyst teams, particularly the teams in Asia, jumped on this very quickly and I think very rightly said, look, the first thing we need to do is to the best that we can track what's actually happening on the ground. We launched a series of indicator reports. So we call them all COVID-19 indicators. And they cover a range of different useful data points that we've managed to gather from different markets to keep a near real-time tab 
on how the pandemic is developing and the impacts that it's having in different markets. These indicator reports go out weekly. We have one that covers road transport. We're actually using live data from TomTom that tracks road congestion, which is not exactly traffic. It's a measure of how slowly traffic is moving, which is a proxy for how much traffic there is. As of the latest report that we've put out, Beijing and Shanghai are actually seeing rising congestion levels in the last few weeks, now seem to be approaching roughly normal levels of congestion, whereas places like Hong Kong and Guangzhou are still below normal levels. And places like New Delhi and Mumbai, those numbers are 80 or 90% down on normal levels. We've got indicators in aviation, indicators in the power sector. How do we decide which industries were going to make the cut as an indicator and which ones weren't? From a sort of energy transition perspective and energy writ large, clearly we're interested in demand for energy commodities, first and foremost. And the first thing that happened was people stopped moving around. And when people stop moving around, that's an oil story because liquid fuels get used for transport. But over time, as we've seen the lockdowns in different countries proceed, with people staying at home more and businesses shutting down as well, that started to leak into the power and gas sector as well. As an example, here in Great Britain, we're running at about 15% below normal expectations in terms of power demand on the grid. In India, it's 27% down, and as much as 50% down in places like Punjab and Rajasthan, particular states within India. So we're tracking really anything that's related to energy. Okay, but those indicators are having to do with the here and now, right? How do those in turn impact our longer-term forecasts? Yeah, so the first revision we made was in our solar forecast. We've essentially deferred a chunk of the project pipeline from 2020 into 2021, particularly in China, because there have been some policy changes, which mean that projects are likely to flow over into the next year. That means that we've actually revised our solar forecast for this year down by 8%. And that could mean that this year is the first time solar installations actually decline like solar's never not grown before. This could be the first year. On the wind side, actually, we thought this year was going to be an all-time record for installations. Now, we've cut that wind forecast by 12%, again, deferring projects into 2021. We're still forecasting a record year at the moment, but it's quite obvious that there's downside risk to that. And just yesterday, I believe our US gas team put out a new forecast for US gas storage. And they're now calling 1.8 billion cubic feet of gas in storage by the end of next winter, up 50% compared to a sort of no COVID-based case, which is effectively a much, much looser market than we had previously been expecting. So those are just sort of three things on the agenda, but we're updating all of our forecasts. And I don't think any of them are going to stay the same after the next few weeks. So you started with a delay in the most basic case, I guess. And then you move into how these things impact every part of our forecast, I guess, into the more structural changes, I guess you could say. So not only does COVID-19 really change everything for these industries and therefore all of our forecasts into the future, but to some extent, it may also change the way that we talk about everything because from a time standpoint, it seems like things are changing so quickly that a usual quarterly, half yearly may not be enough. So how do you decide how quickly and how often you actually need to update on some of the industries that we're doing these indicators for? Yeah, I mean, historically, we've served a few different audiences with different time horizons. In terms of the commodity markets, power, gas, oil, 
we need to be really timely in our analysis. So we've been doing weeklies in, in many of those markets for a long time. And clearly with COVID-19, that kind of real-time analysis becomes even more important because new information comes to light that changes our view every day. And so we've got to do that really rapidly. And then in our other sectors, if you think about renewable energy, electric vehicles, and so on, we normally update these numbers quarterly. Some of the EV sales numbers we look at monthly, but the situation is changing so quickly that we just have to respond more quickly. And I think that's the same challenge that all businesses are having right now. It's the, the flow of news that's coming through every single day. We've just got to keep monitoring it and keep on our toes. Forecasts are tough in the best of times. And we like to do scenarios rather than forecasts per se. But even that, people misconstrue those as like, okay, we're talking a bit about the future and what could happen there. What point do we have enough information to actually be able to reasonably talk about the future? And I think, you know, maybe just even rewinding, if we're looking at this January, February, March timeline, from the point at which we started to see changes in human behavior and changes in companies' behavior due to a lot more people being at home and government regulations, at what point were we able to start to say something meaningful in China and then in Europe and then maybe in the Americas? I think everybody's had to throw away any forecast that was made before about February or March this year. They're all wrong. And anyone who tells you that they've got a forecast that you can invest against or really believe in, it's just not really credible. And so that's a big part of the reason why we're incorporating a set of scenarios into our analysis right now. So you knew the situation would keep evolving and you needed to say smart things about it. So you introduced this thing called scenarios to be able to accommodate different things that could happen. Could you tell us a bit more about those and how those came to be? Yeah, sure. So what was extremely obvious was that any forecast made over the last few months probably needs to be thrown away. And so when you're in that situation of extreme uncertainty, which we all are in, it's better from my point of view to embrace that uncertainty, acknowledge it, and actually try and incorporate into your thinking. Scenario is a great way of doing that. So essentially what we did was we said, we're going to come up with three scenarios for how the pandemic might proceed globally and make sure that in all of our analysis across BNEF, we think about all these three scenarios and how they might impact the sectors that we cover. And that's really powerful because it acknowledges the fact that we simply don't know. Nobody knows how the pandemic is going to play out. But it also means that our forecasts will have a bit more resilience to the changing news every day. We can monitor the news and talk about which of our scenarios looks like it's becoming more or less likely as the pandemic develops. So in terms of how they're built, the main thing is scenarios are all about what are the key unknowns that you want to explore. And so we wanted to explore really the sort of medical and epidemiological unknowns, which are around how is the virus going to develop? Key things like, will it fade in warmer weather? Will it come back for a second wave next autumn or winter? Will treatments and vaccines be found? What are the real infection rates, for example? Are they really as low as we are being told? Or is it more of the population already has it, which would actually be good news in the long term? How quickly can countries ramp up their mass testing and contact tracing programs, which would then mean that we can ease some of the social distancing measures that are currently in place? All of those things are unknown and therefore make for really good variables in a scenario. So we package those into three scenarios that eventually lead to how long does the pandemic actually last for? Where are we getting that sort of information from to put in as a variable? Because the team that you lead are energy analysts. 
So presumably they've not spent a lot of their career looking at different impacts of viruses and things. Yeah, it's a good question. So we're not medical experts um, at all. We don't have public health people on our staff. So we're operating off the same available information that other people have. We read, for example, the Imperial College paper that was widely distributed over the last couple of weeks. We read some papers about how the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic played out globally. We've talked to one or two people who have views as well. And we've deliberately kept our scenarios pretty open-minded in terms of what you would have to believe for each of them to come true, because we acknowledge that we have no real epidemiological expertise. We just framed a sort of wide range of possibilities to make sure that we're covering enough bases. So scenario one is a single wave pandemic, which basically assumes that most countries have three months of pretty heavy social distancing measures to control their outbreaks, but that after the roughly three months, then things can start to return to normal with a ramp up in mass testing, contact tracing, and so on. But if you believe that, then you know if everybody has a three-month outbreak, then probably by the second half of the year, most of the countries have been through that, and your economic recovery can probably start before the end of the year. So that's scenario one. Scenario two is in a slightly less optimistic situation, you might have multiple waves of this pandemic. And that's what happened in 1918. There were three waves over the course of a year. And so we've assumed it looks a little bit like that. Countries go through a sort of one-year shock. It might not be exactly in two or three waves. It might be that there's sort of many on and off cycles of social distancing that are required to keep healthcare systems running. But essentially, the outcome of all of that is that this massive economic shock actually lasts into the beginning of 2021. And it's only the middle of 2021 where recovery begins. And this is a bit bleaker because... Government stimulus can keep businesses running for three months. If there's a three-month shock, you can keep people in their jobs. But if it's a one-year shock, that starts to look much harder. And so you're looking at more businesses going bankrupt, workers being displaced, and so on. And then scenario three is even worse. We call it enduring pandemic scenario. And in that scenario, this thing drags on for 18 months. And the end comes when a treatment is scaled up or a vaccine is scaled up. In this scenario, nothing else works until one of those two things arrives. And that happens sometime around 18 months from now, which pushes out the economic recovery out towards the latter half of 2021, probably the end of 2021. You're really talking about a depression at that point, you know, really not a happy place from an economic standpoint. I mean, I know this isn't a question maybe we should answer, but does BNF or do you have a, a view on which scenario it could be or seems most realistic? Yeah, so that's a really tough question. A couple of observations. One is, I think scenario one, which is currently our most optimistic one, was probably the most pessimistic scenario that most economists would have even entertained a month ago or two months ago. And so I think where we are in terms of like the consensus view, if you talk to forecasters out there, I would probably guess that most people think we're in scenario one already and the signposts are pointing towards scenario two. I'll give you a couple of examples. Both Singapore and Hong Kong, which had early outbreaks and got them under control, have both increased their intervention measures in the last week or two, which to me is a signpost that says, even if you control it at first, it doesn't mean you're out of the woods. It seems like through other things, like they're having imported cases from other countries, it seems like they have to reintroduce measures. So that to me is a signpost towards scenario two. 
And how will these show up in our work? Like, so if I'm a user looking at BNF research, I mean, you said it's going to provide like all of our reports in the coming months plus, should I be looking for three lines in each chart or how should I be looking out for this? Wherever we have a forecast, I'm encouraging our teams to use these three scenarios. Now, the, the forecast revisions I mentioned earlier on solar, wind, and U.S. gas, those are all scenario one forecasts, single-wave pandemic, three-month shock, end-of-year recovery. What you'll see as a client in the coming month or so is that more of our research will explore all three of the possibilities. Some of it will be qualitative, so it might not be a line on a chart. It might be a commentary on the impacts of these three possible scenarios. Some of it will be quantitative, and you'll see lines on charts and so on. And at the same time, we'll be working closely with our colleagues in Bloomberg Economics. They are also updating their scenarios, and we'll be working very closely with them and trying to understand how we can make the best use of their work in our BNF work as well. I've already started to see some of the initial data that leads to some changes also in emissions, which is in many ways linked to the sectors that we cover as well. Is there anything you have initially started to see there? And how does a change in emissions play out along these three scenarios? Because there is a big difference between a blip and something that may be a bit longer term. Yeah, I mean, emissions are definitely going to be down this year, potentially pretty substantially. Clearly, that's nothing to celebrate. Stopping the economy and everybody staying at home forever is not the solution to climate change. So let's just be clear about that. There's a school of thought that says we've now already seen the absolute peak of man-made emissions, that 2018 or 2019 will now have been the peak of emissions and we'll never get back to that level. If that's true, we'll have probably have brought the peak forward by six or eight years. Like I think people were sort of thinking emissions would peak late in this decade. So, so that would be bringing it forward a long way. I think to believe that, you'd have to believe that the shock lasts for more than a few months. I think you're talking about our second or third scenarios. Because if you have a rapid economic recovery, I think 2021 emissions would be back to previous trajectory. I think you'd be back on, onto this growth curve. If, on the other hand, we're looking at a more prolonged pandemic, a longer recession, I think we might find that the low carbon transition might have proceeded further before the recovery really starts to take hold. So for example, if a load of high carbon infrastructure gets retired or mothballed during a recession or a depression, and in the meantime, the costs of clean alternatives continue to decline, then you might not see some of that legacy high carbon infrastructure come back online when the recovery begins? The short answer is nobody knows, but it's a really valid question. I think we're going to think more about that. Well, COVID-19 is nothing to celebrate. If we look at emissions in isolation, the fact that we might have reached our peak is something that could potentially be a very good thing. As we're headed into a period where there's going to need to be stimulus in economies around the world, there are rumors flying about that some of this could be tied to different green incentives. What have you heard about green stimulus to date? Surprisingly, there's been a lot of talk about green stimulus. And I say that's surprising because the focus right now is rightly on trying to keep businesses from going bankrupt, try to keep people employed and keep them housed and fed and deal with the healthcare situation. And if this turns out to be a deep but short recession, then recovery will be a lot easier if businesses stay afloat. And that's the right focus. And that's what we're seeing here in the UK, for example, there's this £300 billion loan guarantee program and the government's committing to cover employees' wages if they're furloughed, etc. And the US has this $2 trillion stimulus package. And all of that is rightly focused in the short term. 
Having said that, clearly there's a lot of people now talking about what recovery packages could look like when the time comes to start stimulating the economy again and how much of that should be green. So I think there are some opportunities to push a sort of climate agenda in any recovery package. So the things that lend themselves really well to stimulus are projects that are quote-unquote shovel-ready, they're ready to go, ready to ramp up, and projects that create jobs. So I think things like renewable power, energy storage, EV charging infrastructure, those are supply chains that are ready to ramp up. They have project developers that are ready to move forward with sites, in some cases, that are already identified. So in terms of job creation, there will be quick wins, and there will be quick wins for the climate as well. Energy efficiency as well is a huge one. We could make huge improvements to our building stock. I would bake in huge carbon reductions for the coming decade, and that would create a lot of jobs in local communities as well. And I'd also love to see some capital going into circular economy. For example, I mean, I could see increased investment into recycling capacity. So I think there are a lot of things that people can see are doable. And I think the, the, the early conversations we're seeing now are about positioning some of those conversations so that they're ready to go when we're ready to really talk about recovery. So a lot of our clients use our research as a guide or a data point or an input, but then they have to still go and do their own to figure out how things are going to impact their company and their strategy going forward. Is there anything that you've found in doing your research or setting the agenda for BNF's research that you'd recommend as they try to get their head around the impacts of COVID-19 and the impact on their company? The companies I've spoken to, the clients I've spoken to are already asking most of the right questions and thinking about the right issues. First and foremost, worrying about their people, how to keep them safe. They're thinking about keeping their operations running wherever possible. They're thinking crucially about their suppliers, their suppliers, suppliers in the whole supply chain and whether those companies need help. Because that's quite hard because the visibility isn't always there. I've spoken to auto companies, for example, who are really working to try and figure out further upstream which companies and countries they're actually exposed to that they hadn't necessarily had to think about before. But I think companies are figuring that out. I think the only thing I would add is to really think about signposts as a way of navigating uncertainty. We've developed our three scenarios. So the key thing for us now is every day, every week to read the news, look at what's happening and ask ourselves, does today's news move us more towards scenario one or two or three? And how should that change what we do in our business? I think every company will have slightly different scenarios and slightly different signposts they should be looking for. But my advice would be to carefully and deliberately define those and pay attention to them over the coming months. So it's clear the future is uncertain, but we're tracking a number of things to make sure that we're staying on top of how this story of all of our lives is constantly evolving. So Albert, thank you very much for giving us a little bit of insight today into the research process and how we really have had to change how we look at the future because of everything that's happening right now. Albert, thank you for joining Mark and I today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.